Friends, we've come now here in chapter 63 to a most solemn chapter, and I find no delight in this chapter at all. That is the first part of it. Because you have in the first six verses here the wrath of the winepress revealed when Jesus Christ comes a second time. And then, that's in the first six verses, and from 7 to 19, you find that in wrath the Savior remembers mercy toward those who are his. This is, as we've said, a chapter that I'm sure we can't take great delight in this first part of it, because we see the wrath of the wine press when Christ comes in judgment, and then, though, the loving kindness manifested toward his own. Now, the content of these first six verses of this chapter is certainly in contrast to the last section, and it really seems out of keeping with the tenor of this entire last section of Isaiah. But judgment precedes the kingdom, and this has always been the divine order. Now we see the Lord Jesus treading the winepress here of the wrath of God. And it's the method that is used here, the mechanics of it. It's in the form of an antiphony. Those who ask a question, they ask a question concerning the one coming from Edom because they're overwhelmed by his majesty and his beauty. Well, this is his second coming because at his first coming, we were told in Isaiah 53, there was no beauty that we should desire him, no majesty then, but now there's majesty and beauty. And this has to do with his second coming. And he comes here from Edom and the east, and we're told that his feet will touch the Mount of Olives on the east. And Edom and Basra here are geographical places, and I think they're to be considered as such. But I do not think this exhausts the mind of the Spirit. Edom stands for the flesh and the entire Adamic race, and this is the judgment of man. Will you note this first verse now in this section where we see the wrath of the wine press that is revealed when Jesus comes? Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now will you notice verse 2. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Now, in that day, man would get in the wine press barefooted and just tread out the grapes step on a ripe grape, and the juice would spurt out, the red juice get up on their garments. And here you have that picture. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Now listen to what he says, his answer to that. I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger." Trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Now, if you'll notice here that it's their blood, not his. Their early church fathers, they associated these first six verses with the first coming of Christ, and they mistook the wine press as the sufferings of Christ on the cross. But such an interpretation, I think, is untenable, as the blood we see here upon his garments is not his blood at all, but it's that of others. Also, it's the day of vengeance, and it's identified already with the second coming of Christ and not his first coming. The Lord made that clear back in Isaiah 61 too. you see. Now, commentators have largely followed this detour which I think has eventuated in a great deal of confusion. The Lord Jesus shed his own blood at his first coming. But that's not the picture presented here. He was trodden on at his first coming, but here he does the treading.
Now, this is a frightful picture, by the way, of judgment. Why? We're told why. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Now, this is his judgment upon the earth when he comes, and it's defined here as the day of vengeance. And he goes on to say, And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered, there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury had upheld me. Now, he wrought salvation alone when he was on the cross, and judgment is going to be his solo work also. Now he says here in verse 6, And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. This, my friend, is the end of man's little day here upon the earth. He's coming now in judgment to the earth. Now there are those that will say, Oh, this is frightful. I don't like the picture here. And like the proverbial ostrich, they put their head in the sand and turn over and read John 14 or some other comfortable passage. And there are a lot of comfort passages in the Bible, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old. And this is one, though, that we need to consider. We have to face up to it. He's coming in judgment the next time. And friends, can you think of any other way that he would come and set up his kingdom today? Suppose that the Lord Jesus appeared as he did the first time. The man of Galilee, the carpenter of Nazareth. And he goes around and knocks on doors and tells them he's here to take over. What do you think would happen? Suppose he knocked on the door of the Kremlin. You think they're ready for him? I don't think so. I think they'd put him before a firing squad before the sun came up again. For the very simple reason that if he knocked on the door and said, I'm here to take over, they're not prepared to turn it over to him. And no nation or no church today even is prepared to turn it over to Jesus, friends. If they are prepared, why don't they? He came 1,900 years ago to this earth, and he was rejected, and he's been rejected ever since. And I can't think of any other way for him to come. Now, there are going to be some that say, yes, this is Old Testament. You have a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but when you get to the New Testament, it gets better. It all clears up, and he's just a God of love. Friends, you know one of the reasons that the book of Revelation is never popular with the liberal, and he likes to hand out the little gimmick about, well, no one can understand Revelation. It's so symbolic. Actually, the book of Revelation is the most mechanical book written in the Bible. It's easier to divide up and to outline it than any other book. It's really a very simple book. And the reason, though, that it today is largely ignored by the liberal and by a great many others is simply because the strongest language in the Bible, except that which fell from the lips of the Lord Jesus. In fact, he talked more about hell than anyone else. And the book of Revelation is filled with judgment. And it's in the New Testament. And actually, it's stronger than Isaiah. Isaiah uses what would be here figurative language to describe a terrible thing, awful thing, that his coming will be like the treading of grapes. And he's coming to put down the unrighteousness and rebellion and godlessness that's in the earth. But you want to listen to just one little segment from the book of Revelation? Just let me turn to chapter 16, and I want to read a few verses here. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways, pour out the bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the man which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his bowl upon the sea, became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl upon the rivers, fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard an angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, 
O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged us. Now, you see, immediately somebody say, God's not fair, he's not righteous, he's not just to do this. God is letting you know that when he judges like this, he is being righteous. And now we're in the New Testament. Now, verse 6 of Revelation 16. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord, God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. God's right in what he does. And, friend, you can put that down. Now, I don't care whether you think he's wrong or not. After all, let's look at it like this. Put you and me right down here by the side of this tremendous universe we live in. Really, we don't mount to much, do we? So your opinion and my opinion, even when it's put together, isn't worth very much. But what God says is important. And when God says he's righteous and we don't think he is, that's because we're wrong. It's not because he's not righteous. God is right in this. Now, I'm not through. Verse 8, "...and the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. Power was given unto him to scorch men with fire." And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Now, you would think all that would cause them to turn to God. It didn't cause them. It just brought out what they really were, just as the plagues of Egypt did. Now, I'm not through. Verse 10, "...and the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain." Now, that's in the Word of God. It's in the New Testament. It's in the book of Revelation. Now, don't tell me that the New Testament is filled with nice little comforting expressions, and it is, and that there's judgment in the Old Testament, because there is love in law, and there is law in love. And a God of love is the one who's making these statements here, and he's making it very clear. And this is, to me, a frightful picture, and you can find no comfort in this picture. He didn't intend for us to. He's coming in judgment to this earth. That is not a pretty picture at all. But that's the way the Word of God gives it, and he never asked me to apologize for him. And you know, I'm not going to apologize for him because he'll take care of his word. He'll take care of these things himself. And I just give out what he's given to me. Now, verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. Now, the entire content and intent changes abruptly at this point. It's like coming out of darkness into the sunlight of noonday. It's a transfer from black to white. Our God is glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And this is only one aspect of his many attributes. He's good. And he exhibits loving kindness. He also is a God of mercy. And if these attributes were not in evidence, we would all be consumed today. You may be sure of that. But he has to come in judgment to take over this earth someday. And he's given man, it seems to me, an extra long time to turn to him. Now, verse 8, for he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie, so he was their Savior. Now his people here are Israel. Why? Because the church has already gone to be with him, friends, in his presence. And there are a great company of Gentile nations down here that will turn to him in that day. It's as if he had high hopes of them, but they disappointed him. Because he was their Savior, they would not lie. Does he not expect us to walk well-pleasing to him today? And he says, lie not one to another to us, by the way. Now, here's a marvelous verse. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. You remember, the angel of the Lord went before him, and I think that was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. 
Now we're told here again in verse 9, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Now how tender are these words. He entered into the sufferings of his people. Now there's been some question about whether this first part of this verse should be negative or whether it should be positive whether we should have the affirmative. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Now, we have good manuscript evidence for that. But also, there's probably even better manuscript evidence for in all their affliction, he was not afflicted. Now, which one is true? Well, actually, both is true. But I like the negative much better because actually when he went with them through the wilderness, And in their affliction, he wasn't afflicted. In other words, when serpents came upon them, they didn't come upon him. In all their afflictions, he was not afflicted, but he was like a mother or a father. He just stood by and waited for them. He never ran ahead of them. The pillar of cloud was there and the pillar of fire was there. God was waiting for them. And for 40 years through the wilderness, he was patient with them. And how patient sometimes a mother is. I used to watch a mother when I was past here in Pasadena. My study was right by the street that led right down to the market. And she had two children. One she carried and the other little fella. He walked some of the time. Some of the time she pushed him. And she'd wait for him. The little fella would stop. He might fall down. He might stay along the way doing something he shouldn't do. And she'd just stop and wait for the little fella. And I thought, Well, that's the way God's been doing with me all these years. I fall down, I get in trouble, and he just waits for us. And that's the way he did with his people, and he'll do that with us today. This is a marvelous verse. Notice what is said about them, verse 10, but they rebelled and they vexed his Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit today is pretty tired of you and me. You really want to know the truth. But he's patient with us. Thank God for that. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? Now, this refers, I think, directly to Israel, but it's, I think, a picture of the entire human family, that the Holy Spirit here is the Holy Spirit that Today indwells believers. Now, actually, back in the Old Testament, we do not have a clear-cut distinction of the work of the Holy Spirit, but I think here is definitely a mention of him. Now, he's the one that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name. Now, that led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. You see, God harks back in their history to their deliverance out of Egypt. And then he goes on to continue their history here, how he's led them. And I'll not go over that. Now the prophet and the people plead with God to look upon their great need and desire. Verse 15, look down from heaven. Behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength? The sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me, are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledgest not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. Now, you'll notice here, God was the father of the nation Israel, but there's no thought in the Old Testament that he was ever the father of the individual Israelite. It's a corporate term, not a personal one in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, it becomes personal and not corporate. Abraham was the father of the nation and not of each individual Israelite. And that's the way God was the father of them. He is the one that was father of the nation. Now, he says, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways? Harden our heart. This is a pleading prayer, asking God to intervene for them. And listen to this last verse 19. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. 
they now surrender completely to God. And I think this should be the attitude of the Christian today. What a picture this should be to us, complete yielding to God. Fred, most of us are afraid to do it. We're afraid he'll be hard on us. Well, he wants to be gentle with us and will be if we give him a chance. But remember, he is the God of judgment. He is the one that's coming, treading the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath on this earth someday. Not trying to frighten you. God's not trying to frighten you. He's just telling you the truth. That's all. All right. Now here in chapter 64, we have the prayer of the remnant of God's people, and it's a pleading prayer. As we saw last time, they were afflicted. God was with them, but they cried out to him, Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. And they called upon God to move in their behalf. Now, this chapter, we find a continuation of that. And we have here in the first five verses, God's control of the universe recognized And then in the last part of the chapter, man's condition in the universe confessed. Now, again, this is a neglected section of the Word of God, and we have tempted to emphasize it, to let us see something we feel very important today of why we hold the premillennial viewpoint, why we believe Christ is coming before the great tribulation period, the church will go out before the great tribulation period, then he'll come at the end of the great tribulation to establish his kingdom. Now, this is not just a theory that somebody got up a few years ago, but this is something that actually we find that Isaiah, what he says, fits into the program. And not just one or two verses that you pull out here and there, but as we have attempted to go through here almost verse by verse that Isaiah's presenting a very definite program. The Word of God just doesn't give little isolated verses to prove some particular theory of interpretation. But whatever your theory is, it has to be fitted down any place here. And if it won't fit, then evidently you need another size shoe because when one doesn't fit... And I think sometime today that some of these theories that I hear remind me of the lady that went into the shoe store and she wanted to get a pair of shoes. And the shoe salesman says, what size do you wear? Well, she says, I can't get on a four. But because a five feels so much better, why, I always buy a six and sometimes a seven. And I feel like that some of these theories, when you begin to really get right down to where the Word of God is speaking, you have to change your size. It doesn't quite fit. Now, here we see these people crying out. Verse 1, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Now, here are these people pleading. And the prophet is a representative of the remnant of Israel in that future day. And as we said, he used the past tense, which is called a prophetic tense. He went the other side of the event and looked back at the event as if it had already taken place. But here, he's pleading with God as the remnant will in that day during the great tribulation period. Now, may I say that all Scripture is not to us, but all is for us. And actually, we can identify with these people. Why? Because we're told today, and our prayer should be, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come for the church today. The Spirit and the bride say, come. An invitation to the world, but an invitation to him to come and hear will be that remnant in that day. And for goodness sake, let them say it. Don't try to horn in here and say, you are the one that's saying it. It's not the church here. This just happens to be the remnant in that day. And I think it's very clear from this section of the Word of God that that's what Isaiah is talking about. 
not what some modern theology has worked out or some little clever scheme has worked out. Now, verse 2, "...as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence." Now, just as fire makes water to boil, so the presence of God would make the nations to tremble. Today, the nations are not conscious of the existence of God. Somebody says, how can we, a Christian nation, sit down with a godless nation like Russia or China? Well, friends, the reason is that we are just about as godless as they are. That's the reason. Today, the nations are not conscious of God. There's no prayer, no turning to Him, no recognition of Him. Now, in that day, as you're coming right down to the wire, the end of the age, there will be a very real consciousness that God is getting ready to break through. There was that consciousness actually at the time of the birth of Christ. There was an expectation throughout the world, and several of the Roman historians have called attention to that. Now, verse 3, "...when thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down the mountains, flowed down at thy presence." Now, the very mountains will melt at his presence. The enemies will then cry to the mountains to hide them. But all they'll do will melt and run all over them. So it won't be very helpful in that day. Now, verse 4. And this is a verse that we have two verses in this chapter that make not the chapter familiar, but the familiar verses are drawn from this one. Now, verse 4 you find it in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for it. Now, Paul uses it in a little different way. Paul says, as it's written, I hath not seen, ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now, Paul then goes on to say, "...but God hath revealed them unto us by Spirit." Now, Paul was quoting the first part, which is quite evident, from Isaiah here. And Paul, though, says that the Holy Spirit in our day will reveal these things unto us. In that day, they're going to have to wait until he comes. And then even for us, it can be said that now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So all along we can identify ourselves with these people, for we have a hope also. But it's a different hope. We are looking for him to take us out of the world. They are looking for him to come and establish a kingdom on the earth. And friends, I'll be honest with you, the only folk that seem to miss this today are theologians. I don't know why they don't seem to know up from down and down from up. He's coming down to the earth. He's going to take the church up to meet him. Now, you really ought to know in this life which is up and up is down and down is not up. And it gives us quite a bit of upside-down theology. I think that we need to make the distinction. But we can identify. Our hearts can go out in passages like this. Now, verse 5, "...thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we've sinned. In those is countenance, and we shall be saved." Here begins the acknowledgment of the sins, and at the same time, a confidence in the redemption of the Savior. Now, here is the verse that is quoted so many times. This brings us now to man's condition in the universe confessed, the rest of the chapter. Now, will you listen to this? But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now, this is a verse that I suppose is used as much as any to reveal the sin of man. 
I know that I've used it a great deal of time. It establishes the fact that man has no righteousness per se. That is, in himself, none whatsoever. And this is not only true of Israel, but it's true of the entire human family. Because we all, both Jew and Gentile, we all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. But we're an unclean thing, and our righteousness are as filthy rags. I don't care what you call good works today. Anything that the flesh produces, and it may sound pretty good down here, you may be able to give a million dollars to feed the poor and the hungry and little orphans and widows. But my friend, in God's sight, that's filthy rags. Now, I know that that's hard for man to accept, but you can't bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing. And a lost sinner can't do anything that is acceptable to God. He has to come God's way first. Now, I recognize the difficulty of that, that immediately somebody will take exception, and especially if they are not saved and they are depending on their own good works. Now I move on here, verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Now may I say to you, God is our father by creation. But man lost that image. And today we can become sons of God in only one way. And that is through Christ. The New Testament revelation of the sons of God is not by creation at all, but on a different basis. John, in John 1, 12 and 13 says, "...but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God." Now, you see here, this verse recognizes God as our creator, and he's a potter instead of a fodder. He's the one that creates. Now, a man that makes a vessel, that is a pretty vase, he's sort of the father of it. We speak of George Washington being the father of his country because he was the first president. But my gracious, there are a lot of other fathers that are around. And in this sense, God is the potter. He's the creator. And we need to recognize that there is a distinction there. And Paul made it when he was speaking yonder in Athens. In Acts 17, 28 and 29, he says, "...for in him," that is God, "...we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." You see, but not his son, not born-again sons of God. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver, stone, graven, art, man's device. In other words, God created us. Therefore, we ought not to make an image and say that that image is a picture of God. We're tempted to create God and God has forbidden that. Now, we drop down to verse 10. He says, "...thy holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation." Now, this was not true in Isaiah's day, but it came to pass shortly after Isaiah when Babylon came against Jerusalem. And in 2 Kings 25, we're told what he did. "...and he burnt the house of the Lord." and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Now, this was literally, you see, fulfilled. Now, we are told here in verse 11, "...our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire." And all our pleasant things are laid waste. Isaiah writes of it as if it's happened. But it didn't happen until about a hundred years after Isaiah. The temple was destroyed, 
At the same time, the Jerusalem was destroyed. And then verse 12, "...wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very so?" In other words, the prophet closes here with a question. Will God refuse that? Well, the remainder of the prophecy of Isaiah is God's answer. God only rejected them after they rejected God. But it did not thwart God's plan and purpose for them and for the earth, because God carried through what he said he would do, and he's yet to finalize that program, by the way. Now, that brings us to chapter 65, and here the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, responds to the remnant. They ask the question. Now, God answers that. The Redeemer does. Their sins have not frustrated God's promises and purposes concerning the coming kingdom. Now, we noted the last in this chapter now we've just finished. The fervent prayer of the prophet and the people, pleading with the king to break through all barriers and come to earth. Now, this chapter, 65, and the next chapter, 66, the concluding chapter of Isaiah, contain God's answer. Now, God makes it very clear to them that their sin and unfaithfulness was responsible for his judgment upon them. Nevertheless, he's preserved a remnant through which he will fulfill all his promises and his prophecies. And again, he gives a vision of the kingdom in this chapter and a prospectus of the eternal position of Israel in the new heaven and a new earth. Now, this extends over to the very end of this book. In other words, this book goes down in a blaze of glory. Now, you have in the first seven verses the response of the Redeemer to the prayers of the remnant and his reason for the rejection of the nation. Now, verse 1 is actually to the Gentiles, to whom the gospel has now come in our day. And Paul quotes from this, by the way, as we're going to see. Now, let me read verse 1. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. Now, these are the Gentiles that the gospel has now come. When Paul got over into Philippi, he'd had the vision of the man of Macedonia. When he got over there, there wasn't any man looking for him are wanting to hear the gospel. There was a woman by the name of Lydia holding a prayer meeting down by the river. She didn't know what she was after. And now Paul brings the gospel. And now Paul quotes this in Romans 10, 20, this verse. But Isaiah's very bold. And he saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. And that's the way it happened to us, friends. Our people today that were heathen and barbarians yonder in the forests of Germany and in England and Scotland, they weren't down on the shore just with their hands held out, says, oh, please send us missionary. They didn't want them. They killed off a bunch of them when they did come. And today, the heathen are not begging for the gospel. I get a little weary when I hear that impression given, oh, let's send the gospel. They're just begging for it. They're not begging for it. Nobody's begging for the gospel. God has responded to people that didn't even call upon him. I never asked him to be saved. He just saved me. I'm like the black boy down south. He says, I ran from him as fast as my sinful legs could carry him in my rebellious heart. He took out after me and he ran me down. <laughs> That's the way it happened. That's the way it happened for all of us. Now, verse 2. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walked in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. That's verse 2. Now, he's talking to the Jew, to the nation Israel. And God first gave the gospel to him. It was to the Jew first. And again, Paul says in Romans 10, Verse 21 now, "...but to Israel he saith, 
All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now, God only rejected them after they rejected God. And you remember when Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That's the way it all came about, friends. In other words, if Jerusalem refuses the gospel, Ephesus will receive it. If Los Angeles rejects the gospel, then maybe Bombay, India, or some out-of-the-way place is going to hear. The flood tide of God's grace will spill over somewhere in this world. Thank God for that. Now in verse 3, and we're in this first section here, the response of the Redeemer to the prayers of the remnant and his reason for the rejection of the nation during that long period that we're in today. Verse 3, "...a people that provoke me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick." Now, this is the reason that blessings were withheld from Israel, because of their continual going into idolatry, rebelling against God. And then he says, "...which remain among the graves, lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh, and broth of abominable things is in their vessels, which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou." These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. Now, these are just a partial list of the reasons for Israel's rejection. They are breaking God's commandment that he gave to them. Now, he says, Behold, it's written before me, I'll not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense, into their bosom. You see, they walked in pride here and blaspheme God. They practice the externalities of a God-given religion, but their hearts were far from God. They practiced iniquity as easily as they practiced the rituals of religion. Now, that brings us to this second division, verses 8 through 16, reservation of a remnant through which the promises are to be fulfilled. God always had a remnant. Thus saith the Lord. I'm reading verse 8 now. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. In spite of their sins, God would not totally exterminate them because of the remnant. It's just like a cluster of grapes in a vineyard that had been passed by, and it was a cluster of wonderful grapes. Now he says, verse 9, "...and I will bring a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it. My servants shall dwell there." Now, a seed out of Jacob could refer to Christ, and I think it does. But more particularly, it refers to the remnant out of Israel that is to be saved. And for the sake of the remnant, God will make good his promises, as he makes it very clear here in verse 10. I probably should read verse 10. And Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down in, for my people that have sought me. You see, there would be a place for the flock, for the little flock. They'd be safe. That's the remnant. Now, verse 11, "...but ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, and that furnish the drink offering unto that number. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter." In other words, for the remainder of the nation that went headlong without heeding the word of God, there remains nothing but punishment. I do not know why today intelligent people who believe in the existence of God can escape the ultimate fact that there will finally come a judging, there must come a straightening out of things, and that 
If they continue on in sin, they'll be judged just as God judged the bulk of this nation. And we need to make a distinction between the nation and the remnant. Verse 14, Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And I think we have the same situation in the church today. Tremendous bloated membership. And that church is a tremendous organization. Somebody says, well, the church go through the great tribulation period. There is a church that's going through the great tribulation periods called an old harlot in the 17th of Revelation. It's just an organization. It doesn't belong to Christ. It's not his bride at all. Now, they'll be taken out before the great tribulation period. We need to recognize there is a distinction to be made between that which is outward and that which is the genuine. Now, God goes on here in that same vein, and when we get down now to verse 17, we come to the third and last division of this chapter. We have here the revelation of the new heavens and the new earth and full kingdom blessings now. I want you to notice this. God says, For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now, we have here the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And it would seem to precede chronologically the setting up of the kingdom here. But I think when you examine it here that you see the remnant has already entered into the kingdom. The others have been judged. And they do not enter the kingdom. The Lord Jesus made that clear in the 25th of Matthew. Come, ye blessed of my Father. Enter into the kingdom. And then the others, they were to be put into outer darkness, and they would not enter into the kingdom. Now, at the end of the kingdom, that is, the end of the thousand year, the millennial reign of Christ, I believe that after that final rebellion, that you have then the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. You see, at the millennium, there are tremendous changes made in the earth. The desert's going to blossom as the rose, and there won't be any more desert in the millennium. But when you get to the new heavens and the new earth, why, you don't even have any more sea there. And you have actually no desert at all, because it's a new earth. We traded in the old model, and we got a new model now, a new earth. I have a little book in which I deal with this, Three Worlds in One, and it's dealing with the third chapter of Second Peter. That's where Peter deals with this problem. There are three worlds. The world that was, that went up in the flood. It was destroyed by water. Now, this world you and I live in is going to be destroyed by fire. And then there will come into existence the new heavens and the new earth. I think this fits chronologically and logically into the program of prophecy in a very normal, natural way here. God is going to create new heavens and a new earth. Now, will you notice, he says, verse 18, "...but be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold... I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now, I think here Isaiah is definitely speaking of the millennial blessings as well as the eternal blessings. You see, there is a blending of the millennial kingdom into the eternal kingdom. In other words, the millennial kingdom is one phase of the eternal kingdom. But it is a time of judgment and I do not think you could bring in a new heavens and new earth until God's program of judging is complete. Then when it's complete, then we are ready for all things to be made new, you see. And I believe that even after the millennium, there's something even more wonderful in store for the child of God in the church today. I think that's when he's going to make all things new for us. And I just can't even conceive of how wonderful 
it's going to be in that day and the possibility and the potential of man at that time. Now, I don't have time to develop that, but I must move along here. And Jerusalem will be a city of joy. It's not that today. You can't go into that city. You've got a wailing wall. And look at any Arab that goes into the mosque of Omar and show me a happy one. I never saw one go in smiling or come out smiling. Jerusalem is a sad city today, but God's going to make it a city of joy. Verse 19, "...and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying." Now, that's going to be quite a change for Jerusalem. Now, we have here, verse 20, another change that'll take place. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. In other words, longevity of life that predated the patriarchs will be one of the features of the kingdom going to live a long time then. And you won't need any senior citizens' homes. There won't be any senior citizens. All of us are going to be young. And I'd like that to start over again, by the way, friends. Verse 21, "...and they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them." You see, property and prosperity is another feature of the kingdom. It's going to be a time of real blessing. Now we're told here, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant another eat. In other words, there's going to be permanence and stability. And then the animal world will change. Drop down to verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And They don't do that today. Now, when the wolf and the lamb lie down together today or feed together, it's when the wolf is feeding on the lamb. And the wolf likes lamb chops. But that day, they'll eat straw together. And the lion's going to eat straw. And as I told you before, this young upstart in a meeting out publicly, he questioned Dr. Gill. He says, who ever heard of a lion eating straw? Anyone knows that a lion never eats straw. And Dr. Gill, in his characteristic, easygoing manner, said to him, said, Young man, you make a lion, and I'll make him eat straw. The one who creates the lion, when he wants him to eat straw, he'll do it. In other words, the jungle, the law of the jungle will disappear. The sharp fang and the bloody claw will no longer rule animal life. And The law of the jungle will be changed to conform to the rule of the king. Nothing to hurt or harm or make afraid in the whole world. I tell you, be a new world then, will it not? Now you have in chapter 66 a panorama here of prophecy. And you can write over this, Thy kingdom has come. Today the prayer is, Thy kingdom come, here it has come. And we have here the Lord designated as a creator, a ruler, a redeemer, a judge, a regenerator, and a rewarder. And that's in the first 13 verses. And then the Lord decides the destiny of both the saved and the lost. And here we see the kingdom passing before our eyes. And you get two glimpses of eternity, those that are saved and those that are lost. And don't forget, both are real. Now we have here verse 1, "...thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool." This little earth that you and I live on, it's not very important. It's just a footstool for God. "...where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest?" In other words, this whole earth could just be a footstool for God in any temple down here on this earth. It couldn't contain him. Solomon recognized that. And Solomon in his prayer dedication of the first temple said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I built. And so the eternal character of the kingdom seems to me to be 
the very presence of God. And you won't need a temple there. I think that the new Jerusalem will be a place where the people on earth are going to come up and worship. They're going to come up and visit. And now, the marvelous thing, the God of creation, the God who's high and holy and lifted up, as we've seen in this book, notice what he says in verse 2. For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. God, who created this vast universe, he is above it and beyond it. Nevertheless, he condescends to dwell with the humble and the contrite of heart. And the poor, oh, what condescension on the part of God. And this is the day when the meek shall inherit the earth. And in fact, they're going to inherit all things. And then he says, he that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. That's verse 3. He that sacrificeth a lamb is as if he cut off a dog's neck. And apparently the sacrificial system will be dispensed with after the millennium. To offer an ox without the spiritual comprehension was the same as murder. In other words, everything in eternity must point to Christ or to that which was once pointed to him, and you perform it instead of looking to Christ, that becomes sin. That's the reason I think that the day to bring a sacrifice is sinful. You tread underfoot the blood of Christ. You just say he hasn't come. Then you move down here. In verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. In other words, God will make the distinction between the true and the false, that which is real, that which is not. He said, Let the wheat and the tares grow together. He would separate them. That time has come. The Pharisee who was meticulous in his religious practice will be cast out. The publican who stood afar off and repented will be received. Now you have a voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. You see, God will finally deal with the enemies of Israel that were his enemies. Now here's a remarkable verse. Before she traveled, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Now, the great tribulation was a time of travail. And Israel went through the great tribulation after Christ was born in Bethlehem. Already been 1,900 years. That's unusual. Now, we have here... And verse 9, "...shall I bring to the birth, and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth, and shut the womb, saith the Lord? God will see that all that he has promised is accomplished." And that little group of 144,000 sealed at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, they're going to come through it. Not 140. 3,999, but every last one of them will be there. How wonderful. And then he can say, Rejoice ye with Jerusalem. What a time of blessing it will be. I'm going to drop down now to this last section here. In this last section, we have the Lord decides the destiny of both the saved and the lost. And in verse 18, For I know their works, their thoughts, it shall come that I will gather all nations and tongue, and they shall come and see my glory. The Lord Jesus mentioned that. In Matthew 25, verse 31, "...when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats." That's going to be a time when a great company of Gentiles are going to be saved as well as Israel. The nations are going to come and worship in Jerusalem, as we're told here, the holy mountain Jerusalem. And now he says here, 
Verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. God's purposes and promises for Israel are as eternal as the new heavens and the new earth. And verse 23, It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. In other words, the redeemed of all ages will worship God throughout eternity. This is the engaging and most important business of eternity. But notice, there's also a group that were not saved. Verse 24, "...and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the man that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched." and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. In other words, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked, either now or in eternity. That's going to be their condition. Hell is eternal. You can picture it any way you want to, my friend, but it's going to be a place where there'll be no peace, no rest, no contentment, no God. And the book of Isaiah closes with this thrice-repeated warning to the human race. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Next time we are going to go to the New Testament, to 1 Thessalonians. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. 